It is really like a generational crime that's being committed to young people that they're they've been given this gift of this this government the longest running most successful democratic republic in the history of the world and they hate it because they don't understand it welcome to acton line a product of the acton institute for the study of religion and liberty i'm eric Cohn, executive producer america isn't a democracy it's a republic. If you listen to this podcast, there's a decent chance you've heard somebody say that before. And usually it's said to make a salient point about the type of government that we have in this country. But would it be a difference that the founding fathers would recognize and make themselves? In most important ways, yes. But in some other ways, no, says Jay Cost, the Gerald R. Ford non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and author of the new book, Democracy or Republic, The People and the Constitution. In both types of government, the citizens have the power to rule, but republics go further than this. A republic, as Abraham Lincoln put it, is a government, quote, of the people, by the people, for the people. But in a simple democracy, the majority can rule for the good of themselves rather than the whole community. How do you place the people in charge without creating a democratic tyranny? By the time of the American Revolution, nobody in the history of the world had yet answered this question. But America's founding fathers did just that, and the Constitution reflects their ingenious solution, the idea of consensus. They created a government that would take action, not because a narrow and fleeting majority demands it, but because a large, broad, and considered coalition of people has found common cause with one another. This reflects the true opinion of the people, not just a faction that is temporarily in power. That is how the government of the people becomes government for the people. America then is not merely a democracy. It is something greater. It is a republic built on the idea of consensus. And while our country today has many problems, consensus remains the best way to solve them according to cost. Far from being a liability for the United States, the constitution is still its greatest asset. Today, I talked to Jay Cost about his book, about the American system of government as envisioned by the founders, and about how it's holding up in the 21st century. Jay Cost is the Gerald R. Ford non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he focuses on political theory, Congress, and elections. He is also a visiting scholar at Grove City College and a contributing editor at the Washington Examiner. Dr. Koss' interests are broadly focused on civic republicanism in the United States, with emphases on the political theory of James Madison, the problem of political corruption, the role of political parties, the development of civic institutions over time, and the power and responsibility of Congress. He writes and speaks frequently on American elections, with a special attention on placing contemporary trends in historical context. His books include James Madison, America's First Politician, The Price of Greatness, Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, and the Creation of American Oligarchy, and A Republic No More, Big Government and the Rise of Political Corruption. Dr. Cost has a PhD and an MA in Political Science from the University of Chicago, and a BA in Government and History from the University of Virginia. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Jay Cost, welcome to Acton Line. Well, thanks for having me. It's a it's a real pleasure to be here. So your book is I wanted I, I should start here first. Uh, your role at AEI, where you are the Gerald R. Ford non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, which I feel I should acknowledge at the top, since we at Acton are based here in Grand Rapids, Michigan, the home of uh, Gerald R. Ford. Um, so it's I feel we should acknowledge that before we get going. Absolutely. Your book that we're going to discuss today is Democracy or Republic, The People and the Constitution. Uh, as I'm reading through the, the marketing copy for it, there's a, a question in the second paragraph, and I think that's probably where we'll start. 
What kind of government were the founders trying to achieve? Well, again, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure uh, to be with you. Um, the, the founders were looking to achieve a republic, which is, I, I, you know, people say, well, what's the difference between a democracy and a republic? I, 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 I like to um, think about Lincoln's definition of a republic government of the people, by the people, and for the people. It's that last one that's most important. The idea that the government is the property of the of the people, of the entire political community, and that it is therefore duty-bound to act on its behalf. Now, the founders were uh, of the conviction that the only way a republic could actually function is if all offices were ultimately tied to the people, so of the people and by the people. So, so it's intended as a as a mix, right? It's intended in part to rely on what the founders called the Republican principle of majority rule, which we today would call democracy. But it's a democracy that is to be shaped and guided in such a way that the people don't govern simply for a faction like a, a, a numerical majority that will not have the power to rob a numerical minority and take all of their all of their wealth and trample on their rights and things like that. So it's intended as a mix. What influences were they drawing from? So, you know, in the modern conversations we were having about this, where somebody like John Locke becomes this scary totem about which there are incantations that if we could just somehow get rid of John Locke, it would change the whole nature of our government. Um, were they influenced by Locke and his political thinking? Were they influenced by the Roman Republic and, and the history of all of that? Was it a mix of it? What inspiration are they drawing in drawing up this kind of a document to form the government of this country? Yeah, well, I think they definitely were influenced by Locke. Um, I think in particular, Locke's vision of the ends of government. What is the purpose of government, right? That, that government is not supposed to you know, in the classical Aristotelian sense, government is not supposed to bring about eudaimonia, right? It's not supposed to make us better people. It's not supposed to help us achieve our natural or potential excellence. The purpose of government is to protect our rights um, and above all, frankly, and as problematic it sounds today, to protect the right to property. That's the appropriate ends of government. And that is expressed at multiple points throughout the Constitution, even not just the Declaration of Independence. Constitution talks at multiple points about the protection of property. So there is that. The question, I think the way to think about this is, okay, so we have the ends of government being, you know, Lockean or maybe better put just English, because I think that Locke was really articulating an idea that had been developing in England up to that point for almost a millennium. The question is, okay, how do we go about doing that? And for that answer, the Americans do not rely nearly as much on the British. I mean, they they sort of borrow elements of the British system, the bicameral legislature, for instance. But the Americans are more inspired by the the, the Roman model, um, the Roman Republic, and they're all, they're particularly. Uh, I think they. They lean a great deal on the writings of a, a interesting character named Polybius, who was a Greek-born kind of intellectual who was brought to Rome as a as a slave, actually, when Rome had conquered Greece, and and he said about trying to understand how this podunk backwater city-state could conquer the, you know, the heir to the empire of Alexander the Great. And one of the things he came up with is what we today understand as checks and balances. He said, you know, Polybius's argument is that the Roman system um, was a brilliant innovation in terms of power sharing. And the Americans, I think more than anything else, really emphasized the nature of power sharing. You were talking a little bit about this, but I want to drill down a little more on it. The differentiation to be made between democracy and republic in what ways what you know, give us maybe again how we should differentiate the two and what ways are they synonymous and in what ways are they opposed to each other because we get the way people talk now they're used interchangeably or yes. I think particularly on the political right, you'll get a lot of the we're not a democracy, we're a republic, which always seems to me to be kind of gesturing at a point that's correct but is not nearly as profound as is suggested by the people who, who chant it. 
Yeah, I think that's a good point. So um, I guess to start, I would point out that if you look at examples of republics um, prior to the United States, we would probably call them oligarchic republics. So the Roman Republic had power sharing among the citizenry, but the citizenry was an elite group to start. You had, you know, citizenship was sort of restricted, especially in the era of the Republic. And then on top of that, um, wealthier citizens, the equestrians and the patricians enjoyed um, greater political power than the plebeians. Uh, if you likewise look at the Florentine Republic of the Quattrocento, um, same thing. It's an oligarchic republic. Ditto the Venetian Republic. It's oligarchic. It's probably the most extreme example of oligarchy, right? So really, it's it it the way to think about it is 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 that a republic is generally characterized by uh, power sharing arrangements among the citizenry for the sake of the community of citizens. So the United States, um, yes, when the country is founded, the franchise is limited. Obviously, it's it's limited to white men. Um, and they do borrow this sort of notion of property ownership as being an essential quality of citizenship. They, they've gotten that from a variety of places in the Western tradition. But the, the trick in the United States was um, that in the early, like, you know, really up until, I don't know, relatively recently in our history, land was extraordinarily cheap. Um, so the United States was always going to be probably destined to move in a sort of a more democratic direction whereby, you know, the, the citizenship is broadly defined. I would say that's probably the best way to understand the differences between the two of them. A Republic conceives the government as um, being for the citizenry and structures it in such a way that the government acts on behalf of the citizenry. And then when we're getting into the differences between a democratic republic and an oligarchic republic, it's really an issue of how broadly we're defining uh, the base of citizenship. But I, I would point out um, that, you know, we, people talk about um you know, how we're a democracy. We're not a democracy. We're a, we're a democratic republic. That's an important distinction. I mean, democracy comes from the Greek, literally translates to rule of the people. There are all sorts of things that the people are not allowed to do. Right? I mean, that's the Bill of Rights itself is, is an expression of the limits of what the people are allowed to do. Um, and the, you know, our, are three branches of government and the division of power, all of it seeks to limit or at least redirect the power of the people towards certain ends. And that, I think, is the most important thing to bear in mind, is that a republic talks about the end of government. A democracy is really the means of government. And it's and a democratic republic channels the democratic spirit towards republican ends. What you could also have throughout the country, a kind of mix of ways of making those decisions about things where you have things that are a lot closer to pure democracy. You have states that have a lot of ballot referenda that you can change the law by getting 50 percent plus one person to vote for it. Um, there are other states where you need a you know two thirds majority, or to amend the constitution, you need you know two thirds majority, and you need the states then to to ratify it. So there's kind of different forms of the application of democracy and what barrier you need to cross in order to accomplish the ends that you're after. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think when you compare and contrast the federal constitution to the state constitutions, you can really sort of appreciate the differences is that people, generally speaking, are more free to alter their state constitutions and their state systems of government than they are the federal system. And e even within the states, you see wide varieties. So, for instance, I live in Pennsylvania. We have very limited means by which to affect public policy directly in this country. Uh, or in our in our political community, but if you go out to a, a place like California, I mean, the Ca California electorate has a number of ways to directly affect the uh, the policies of the state, and you know, frankly, that's it, that's not a coincidence because you know a lot of these state constitutions get sort of anchored in the early, as, at least on the East Coast, the state constitutions get anchored in the early 1800s. And then when these Western states are founded, they're much more in the populist tradition, right? So, and it's very peculiar to think about it today, but Wyoming, which we usually think of as maybe the most conservative state in the country, was actually the first to allow for uh, 
uh, women's suffrage. They did so even when they were a territory in the 1860s. So it was just sort of a part of the westernization of the country that we became increasingly democratic. Um, but again, that democracy is a means to an end. There's a couple of things I want to circle back to, going back to the uses of those terms, democracy and republic. To what extent would the founders have used them largely interchangeably like we do now? And to the extent that we use them somewhat interchangeably now, does this create, in your view, any problems in the way that we view the operation of our system of government? Because I think you could probably tie this most directly to the way people understand or fail to understand perhaps the electoral college, right? Uh, that it is, you know, people look at the total number of votes that somebody gets for president and think that the person who rises to that office should always correspond to the person who gets the most votes, but that's not the way the system is set up. And we get these tensions that uh, now appear largely because of odd artifacts of history, right? That we've had a handful of elections in recent memory where uh, the person who got the most popular votes did not become the president of the United States. So yeah. to what extent were these terms interchangeable with the founders? And to what extent are does the interchangeability of them now contribute to the civic problems that I think we would probably both agree that we have in the country at the moment? Yeah, those are some great questions. I, in response to the issue of the founders' understanding of the terms, uh, they would generally have avoided using the word democracy, which would have had a, a bad reputation. I mean, uh, particularly um, after the, the French Revolution uh, turns violent in the early 1790s. You're going to be very careful to use the word democracy because that is it's a politically loaded word um, because democracy became synonymous with social revolution. Um, destruction of property, violation of individual rights. That is a word that sort of comes later on, I would say. So like, for instance, when um, Tocqueville, Alexis de Tocqueville comes to the United States and he, in 1835 and 1840, he publishes Democracy in America. And, and I think that Tocqueville is probably um, demonstrating or illustrating maybe that the word had become more comfortable as a as an understanding of our system as we became as we moved west as land became available and we were effectively by the time Tocqueville's writing it we have universal white manhood suffrage by that point i would say that when the when the founders when they want to talk about what we today would call the democratic principle of majority rule, they would have called it the Republican principle of majority rule. Cause in their view, it was, you could not have a proper expression of the public interest without the, what you needed in majority rule. I think that one of the challenges with, um, so that you mentioned the electoral college and the sort of discussion, the problem, not the discussion, but the problems that we have today in understanding how our system of government is intended to work. Um, I, I think that one of the challenges is that people forget just how large a country we are. And they forget, you know, when they complain about the Senate, and they complain about the Electoral College. What they're really complaining about is that these sparsely populated areas have um, an outsized role in our system. And I think what they're misunderstanding is really the essential value of federalism. Usually we think about federalism as the sharing of power between the federal governments and the states. And it definitely is that, but it is also the uh, commitment to bringing state political communities into uh, decision-making on the national level. So we see that in the Senate. We also see that in the Electoral College. And this was not something that when they went to Philadelphia in 1787, they that Madison, for instance, wanted. He, didn't, he did not want this kind of federalism. Um, it was something that was basically forced upon them by a political compromise. Um, but even though it was the, and so people will point that out and say, oh, well, it's a political compromise. There's no reasoning behind it. That's not true. There is a reasoning behind it. It's just that the reason had to be articulated through the debates. And the reasoning is this, is that 
you know, in 1787, Virginia, Pennsylvania, and Massachusetts were overwhelmingly the population centers of the United States of America. So why don't they get a simple majoritarian process? Well, the answer is really straightforward, that Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, and Virginia are not contiguous to one another. I mean, technically, Virginia was contiguous because of West Virginia, but at that point, it's all frontier. Those three states do not constitute a country. Right. And when you're talking about a political community that is going to take on a large geographical sphere, space matters. Right. Particularly the ascent of the governed in what people in the population centers would call the interstitial spaces or what people today on the coast call flyover country. You don't have a United States of America without flyover country. You would instead have multiple United States of Americas. Like you don't, you, you, like you, like there's a stretch of states that runs from North Dakota down to Oklahoma. And you go, well, what do we need those? Well, you need those places because without them, you're not a country. And so they, you know, how do, how do we keep these sparsely populated, but geographically essential places um, tied to and loyal to the, the political community? Well, they have to have a guaranteed voice, Right. Um, and I, and I think that people take for, for granted the importance of this. Like one, one of the things, and I, I mentioned this in, in my book, I just alluded to it briefly, but you know, the, the you know, Sherlock Holmes is, I don't remember which mystery, one of the mysteries that he solves is uh, do the dog that doesn't bark, right? That's the sort of sign that the part that the, that the perpetrator was known to the dog. That's why the dog didn't bark. The dog that never barked in the history of the United States was a Western revolution. It never happened. Never once happened. We never saw after Aaron Burr's cockamamie scheme in like 1805 to go off and foment revolution <laughs> in the West. We never had that problem. And so the well, the question is why? Like if you're in the Dakota territories in say the 1880s, why would you want to join the United States of America? Well, the answer is it's an incredible deal. It's an incredible deal. If you know you get two senators, you get a House member, and you get um three electoral votes. You get to have actually have a meaningful say. In the political process. And none of these territories um, ever sort of desire to break away. Even like, even if you look at like the Utah territory, right? And Utah's commitment to polygamy and the Mormon community out there that, that they, you know, they abandoned their half century long commitment to polygamy so that they could join the United States of America as a state, as a, as a state. And so people who today talk about, you know, oh, well, we should have a direct popular vote. We should get rid of the Senate. I mean, there's, you know, there's three ways that um, facilitate loyalty and obedience to a, a, a system of government. There's military force, there's bribery, and there's a belief among the citizenry that the laws reflect their own interests in some way, right? And so let's say we get rid of all of these sort of constitutional protections for these sparsely populated places for a generation or so, I probably would see them stay within the union out of a sense of shared memory and shared loyalty. But what about in 75 years, 75 years of say like Wichita, Kansas being ruled by Los Angeles, California, New York city, are they going to put up with that for that long? Yeah, that, that is not how human nature works. People, people need a reason to obey the government. And the constitution does a brilliant job of bringing, in far-flung disparate people into the actual system through which they have not just a technical vote, but they actually have a meaningful say. Every, all of the states have a meaningful role to play in the formation of public policy. I always thought the great uh, as of yet unrealized sequel to the musical Hamilton would be something about Aaron Burr's uh, entirely bizarre efforts after uh, uh, the duel he has with Hamilton and what he goes west <laughs> to do. And for people who don't know that, just go look up that story. It is absolutely wild. Yep. Uh, you talked a little bit about this with de Tocqueville, but how does the term democracy get rehabilitated? Because we use it far more than we use the term Republican now. Yeah. Uh, and I have a follow-up question that I think it may get to a little bit of this. But how does how does democracy get rehabilitated and kind of become the default term that we use to describe our system of government? That's a great question. Um, I would say there is um, – 
there is probably the, the moment where that really begins to happen is in the 1820s after the corrupt bargain, um, the so-called corrupt bargain between Henry Clay and John Quincy Adams. What Clay and Adams did or what they were alleged to do and which they basically did um, was perfectly not just legal, but was actually sort of consistent with the founding vision of choosing the president, right? That the, the original electoral college was um, to be a, a setup in which the first choice through the electors was ideally to be an individual of great national esteem, a national reputation. Barring that, in the absence of an electoral college majority, would go to the House where there would be bargaining. And that's exactly what Clay and Adams did. They made a bargain with one another, and they made a pretty reasonable bargain, not just between the two individuals, but if you think of Clay being the sort of advocate of a Western interest and Quincy Adams being from Massachusetts, it's a pretty straightforward regional bargain as well. But the reaction to the the so-called corrupt bargain, even the fact that it was called corrupt— and the idea was, no, the people had chosen General Jackson. And so, therefore, uh, this was illegitimate, I think, is, is an indication of the shift in the language. But, you know, it flips back around, though, in the 1850s, after the, after the particularly after the, uh, uh, the Compromise of 1850, and then the Kansas-Nebraska Act, and you see the emergence of a political party known as the Republican Party, drawing its name from the Jeffersonians called themselves the Republicans. They did not like, well, in common memory, we, were, we, we recall the Jeffersonian Party as the Democratic Republican Party. That's not what they called themselves. But the Republicans of the 1850s were sort of doing the same thing that the Republicans of the 1790s thought they were doing, which was protecting or vindicating a national interest against the designs of a selfish faction. Um, so that's where we get this fight between, you know, the Democrats and the Republicans. So even the right, and I would say too, I, I think that you sort of see this still today in the contemporary sort of imagination that for all that the parties have changed, you know, usually when you could, when you hear people say, oh, our constitution isn't consistent with democracy with a small D, they're probably Democrats with a capital D. Um, and people who are like, well, it's actually more complicated than that, like myself, right? I'm a small R Republican, but in Pennsylvania, I am registered as a capital R Republican. Um, and I think there's probably some still these two traditions going on. And, you know, maybe it has to do something with the fact that in the last, you know, 75 years or so, the elite quarters of public you know, intellectuals have been almost uniformly captured by the left, and then they're now all capital D Democrats. So this is the only discourse in which they can conceive the American project engaging in, which is, you know, democracy, when in fact it's actually a mixture, a complicated mixture. I, you you got to the question I was going to ask, so I, I guess it's not as weird a question as I thought it might be, of to what extent do having two political parties in a two political party system named the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, when here we are talking about there's a difference to be made between democracy and Republican form of government, do what to what extent does this engender some kind of confusion amongst people? You know, and again, I'm I'm keeping this in the context of at least my opinion that I think we're failing on civics education. So like a, a lot of, you know, the understanding people would need of why the electoral college exists and why the separation of powers exists and why we have, you know, three branches of government and all of that, that we're, we're not doing a good job of educating no, people at that. Uh, but the having two political parties rep bearing the names essentially of these two concepts that both go together and oppose each other at the same time. To what extent does that engender confusion amongst people um, or to you kind of what you were talking about, does it still largely represent those two kinds of forces that have been battling each other really since the founding of this country of are we going to be more of a uh, more of a country that is pure democratic, although certainly I don't think anything in the founding really suggests that anybody was much interested in that. But that has evolved over time and the kind of Republican principles that you've been describing. 
Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's interesting, the history of the Democratic Party for the vast, well, at this point, probably not the vast majority of it. But, you know, Jackson claimed the mantle of democracy, um, you know, but the, the great irony was, is that the, the Democratic Party really until the 1960s was in many respects the anti-democracy party. I mean, if you, you know, I, I, I sort of, you know, like people are looking for a you know, a hot take of mine about American political history is, you know, that the, that the Democrats stole the elections of 1876, 1884, 1888, 1912, and 1916. Um, they stole all of them because they systematically violated the constitutional uh, right, the 15th Amendment and the 14th Amendment. Um, you know, so they're, they you know, the, the history of the Democratic Party is until really, honestly, until it was until it was Lyndon Johnson came around. Um, it, well, Lyndon Johnson on a presidential level, because if, yeah. if you look at Johnson in the 50s, he's still killing civil rights legislation as late as 1959. The party really was not Democratic. Um so there is an irony there that, that that the party, and it's an interesting thing too, because the party started as this sort of like democratic movement, but it ends up getting, um, you know, like the, the this slavery issue, you know, kills the Whig Party, and the Whig Party tried to be this north south balance around uh, the America Clay's American system, and it doesn't kill the Democratic Party, but it it eviscerates the the motive force of the Democratic Party in many respects. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of confusion there. I mean, it's probably similar. I, I it's probably similar, I guess, in some respects to the Tories and the Whigs in Great Britain. Like the Tories, that was like the nickname that um, the pro, the Protestant side. It was like a put down of the of the Stuart side. That like you know, it's sort of like political parties get named for you know, weird reasons, I guess, but there, I, I, I do think that there is to, to sort of like the essential point that you made is very, very true that we are doing as we are doing a reprehensible job of educating future generations about what this government is supposed to do, why it was created that way, what we should expect from this government, how it should function. And it is remarkable the extent to which like we are the inheritors of this remarkable tradition. And like the last two generations have just failed to explain to the subsequent generations exactly what we have. I mean, it is, it is really like, a generational crime that's being committed to young people that they're they've been given this gift of this this government the longest running most successful democratic republic in the history of the world and they hate it because they don't understand it even though we've spent all this money trying to educate them we never actually bothered to explain to them exactly what the founders were up to in the 1780s kind of inclination that all young people have to be radical in some form to not understand and accept that they are heirs to an incredible radical revolution that was a truly positive one in the uh, changing the kind of systems of government that applying lessons from what came before it and empowering people as you know citizens of a country and not just subjects of uh, a monarch right. and you end up now with you know as we've certainly become familiar with here at uh, at Acton some of the conversations we've engaged in people who are kind of pining for some kind of a monarch or some kind of a strong leader because of how bad they think things have gotten and that only a strong man is going to be able to fix these problems for us yeah, and I think it that speaks to the 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 a related failure, which is our just reprehensible as a, I mean as a as a nation as a community of people, a reprehensible failure at transmitting a solid proper education in history to young people as well. The idea that people are pining for a monarch is just a sign that the educational system has failed them. Right. Like I think today actually is the, I think this is 18 Brumaire today. I think that this is the day. I think I saw this when, before the, we began recording, I saw that, um, you know, I think today is the anniversary of Napoleon Bonaparte seizing power from the directory in 1799. 
And, you know, that is a story that is an important story that people, young people don't learn. They, they just don't learn it. And we don't teach it to them. And, and, and we don't, and, and there's a, you know, there's a, we were talking about Tocqueville a moment ago, right? Um, is, you know, Tocqueville's agenda and democracy in America was to try to explain, you know, like in 1835, looking at the wreckage that the failed French revolution had done, not only to France, but also all of Europe, how had democracy seemed to work in the United States? What were we doing right? You know, because the French had screwed it up as badly as it could possibly have been screwed up. I mean, that's just the reality. And, um, you know, if anything, Bonaparte's coup was a mercy done to that you know, wretched di directory government. You know, we don't like, and, and this is I, what I'm getting at here, I suppose, is like, we don't communicate to young people in, in my in my judgment we don't communicate to them that these institutions did not arise spontaneously that they're actually the product of literally millennia of development and that the americans while we got some things disastrously wrong like we defined at the founding too narrowly the the the, the zone of citizenship we define it like this and it should have been that um you know it was too narrow we got something spectacularly correct and, and, and people don't appreciate that. And I, and I think it gets to, I think the history problem and the civics problem is that they don't understand why, what, what did we get right? And like that, honestly, this is a reason, one of the reasons I wanted to write this book. I'm um, not because I expected it to be, you know, on a runaway bestseller. It, it's not, <laughs> but I, I actually dedicated it to my, my students. Cause I, I teach high school at a small Christian school here in Western Pennsylvania. And it's one of the things I try to do, um, in that is to actually at least try and explain to them. And, and so I sort of wrote it as a way for particularly young people to uh, stop and appreciate, Oh, this government actually exists. We, we do things the way we do things for a reason. And, and look, if you want to disagree with that reason, you're more than welcome to there's, there were disagreements at the time that anti-federalists thought that the constitution was faulty. And, you know, the anti-federalists had a lot of valid points, but you know, the bigger problem I have is that people don't know what those reasons are. So their disagreements are actually just, you know, ridiculous. Tying it back possibly to Tocqueville, but as he's trying to explain why has this, you know, attempt at a democratic form of government worked so well in America when we see the carnage and the wreckage of what is going on in France, to what extent can you attribute at least some of that to um, properly understood American exceptionalism, right? The idea that just, you know, Americans were just different and we didn't come, well, people came from Europe, you know, as a country, we didn't have the same feudal past. We didn't have a right. lot of the baggage that we, we would be bringing into a revolution like we had in the 1770s, as opposed to a lot of the baggage that was being brought into the French Revolution. Yeah, I think that's right. The the Americans were exceptional in in so many respects. I mean, and and the institutional differences between the United States and Europe were multiple. And, you know, some of them were governmental, like the absence of an aristocracy. Some of them were, frankly, geographic because land was cheap in the United States. And I think it, it led to um that intrepid American spirit. You know, I was just teaching, I was teaching this week, my students, I was teaching them about the second great awakening. And as an introduction to it, I, I quoted Tocqueville and Tocqueville's understanding of religion and, and how Tocqueville pointed out that, um, not, not that I want to turn the conversation to religion, but it's an interesting commentary on the, um, on the American spirit was that the Americans in Tocqueville's view had sort of fused religion and political liberty to such an extraordinary extent that they didn't even realize what they'd done. Um, and so one of the reasons, you know, I, I tell my high schoolers, you know, like, you know, you're going to get mailers from every small, tiny Christian college between here and the Mississippi river. That's because, you know, as people moved West, there were all these sort of Yankee Protestants who like, came along, like left their life of comfort behind to spread religion and by extension to spread the principles from their perspective, the principles of free government. I mean, I, and I think that is also part of the intrepid spirit or the unique character of the United States of America was the spirit of Americanism. Um, you know, and I, you know, another example I give as well is, is, you know, if you look at like Lincoln's um, second inaugural address, um, he, un he understands the institution of slavery in a way that 
I, I don't think anybody else in the West had seen it. And contextualizes the issue of slavery basically in biblical terms and like comparing like in the institution of slavery to original sin and the civil wars, the punishment were due. Uh, it's just such a uniquely American thing. And I think I think that American exceptionalism is it exists for a lot of reasons, but I think ultimately it lives, it lives, it exists most substantially in the hearts and minds of the American people, which is why I think this absence of proper civic education is really concerning because, you know, this is something that has to be passed down from generation to generation. And if we're not doing it, that's a major problem. Uh, two things. One, uh, us at the Acton Institute will always welcome anybody who wants to turn the conversation and these things to religion. So you're more than welcome to do okay, that. Good. <laughs> um, and you, you reminded me actually of another Lincoln speech that I think well captures this, which is uh, to the extent that I can always remember it exactly as he said it. I, I try to. No, the, uh, the electric court speech from Lincoln, if they look back, talking about immigrants coming to this country, if they look back through this uh, history to trace their connection to those days by blood, they find they have none, that they cannot carry themselves back to that glorious epoch and make themselves feel that they are part of us. But when they look through that old Declaration of Independence, they find that those old men say that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. And then they feel that that moral sentiment taught in that day evidences their relation to those men, that that it is the father of all moral principle in them and that they have the right to claim it as though they were blood of the blood and flesh of the flesh of the men who wrote that declaration. And so they are. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's, it describes me perfectly. Like my, my great grandparents came over here from um, Northern Ireland in the 1890s. But when I think about my history as an individual, I don't think like, okay, well, I was a Northern Irish until the 1890s. And then I became an American. I don't look at the history of Northern Ireland in like the 1850s and say, well, that's my history. When I think about my history, I think of in the 1850s, I think about I think about Abraham Lincoln. I think about um, the tragedy of Dred Scott. I think about the moral clarity of Lincoln. Um, that's my history. And I think that's I mean, that's exactly his point. Right. That we're like. Once you, uh, you we're, you know, it's an adoptive relationship, but once you're adopted, you're in. That's it. We talked early on about uh, some of these systems, governments that inspired the founders um, being rules of elites. That is certainly a term that we hear a lot these days where we talk about the problem with elites in our government, in our civil society. To what extent do you think? The American system of government has become one more run by elites and more in line with kind of the the other forms of government that the founders took lessons from but wanted to move us away from that pure elite leadership. What, what credence do those arguments about the elites run everything in this country have? Yeah, it's funny. It's funny you ask that because I'm sort of having finished my, this project and thinking about what I'm going to do next. I'm going to sort of increasingly move towards thinking about elites in the United States of America. I mean, the Constitution is, in many respects, a pretty elitist system of government. I mean, the Senate. I mean, they called the Senate the Senate. You know, this is that's sort of a tale about what they thought that institution should be like. Um, and if you look at, you know, the management of the government in the early days of the Republic, it was really the administrative offices were really kind of a government of gentlemen. You know, you had Jefferson and then Madison and the secretaryship of state, you had Hamilton and then later Gallatin. And it was just sort of, and, it, and the, the, the administration of the state became more democratic during Jackson's administration, but it ended up being corrupt um, and so civil service reform sort of went back to this sort of unspoken principle of the early founding, which is that we need the best people to be running these offices, which is, you know, basically what we had just by a handshake agreement in the in the early republic, but that had been perverted into the spoil system. You know, I think there's two things or two issues, one of which is the massive growth of government um, I would say, obviously, since the Great Depression, but I think particularly since the Great Society, there's just a massive expansion of the, 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 the duties of the administrative state. 
I mean, the number, and it's interesting as well, too, because if you look, the number of bureaucrats has like stayed the same, um, but the size of the government keeps getting larger. And so increasingly the government is looking to like NGOs. It's it's outsourcing it uh, to elites who are not actually in the government. Um, that is a worrying trend just in the sense that as a general rule, I think the free market should be allowed to function insofar as we're not providing essential public goods. In a lot of cases, we're not. We're just sort of engaging in political log rolling. Um, I One of the things that I do think is a deeper problem, though, is, is that I that even if we were to scale back the government significantly, we would still have a very elitist administration of, of the, of, uh, you know, just because our, our country is so large. Um, and just, you know, you think about sort of like the interstate commerce clause when they wrote that in 1787, interstate commerce was pretty narrow, you know, but like even this conversation that you and I are having, I mean, you're in, you're in Grand Rapids, I'm North of Pittsburgh, this is interstate, right? So it's just going to lead to, you know, we're going to, we're calling for the regulation of interstate commerce. It's just going to be a lot of elites. I think that one of our biggest problems is not the existence of elites, but that our elites are just terrible. Um, I think that elite, like if if you think about the sort of principle that, okay, we need like the best and the brightest to borrow, you know, an ironic phrase from David Halberstam. We need the best and the brightest in the business of managing the state. Are we, are, are our educational institutions and our sort of professional institutions creating avenues by which the naturally best and brightest are being brought into government? I would say no. And I would say moreover, and I would say probably more shockingly, and this is really going to be the focus of my next bit of research, is that they are educational institutions and our professional institutions are failing to inculcate in future elites, and I think have failed for so long, we're already seeing this in government, have failed to inculcate in them an understanding of an affection for and a love of virtue. And by that, I don't mean, you know, Christian virtue, although it could be included in it, but I mean just like the four cardinal virtues of, of Aristotle, you know, prudence, justice, uh, courage, and moderation. Like our elites embody none of these things anymore. Um, and you wonder why. I mean, you look look at what, you know, look at the sort of type of curriculum that you can take in, in even the most elite universities and get a degree and you can get a degree in honors and have never encountered any of these sorts of important sort of functions and features. It's a breakdown of monumental significance. And, and what's so shocking about it is that the whole purpose of American educational institutions in their creation was precisely to instill those virtues. Um, and instead, our, our higher education institutions have become a sort of combination of, you know, non-machining technical learning. So you learn the technique of being an accountant or whatever, on the one hand, or just a breeding ground for postmodern radicalism. And at no point does, does the university even today possess the language to be able to articulate the idea that one of the purposes of education is to make you a good person, which in fact is the essential purpose of education in a republic that is going to depend upon the management of a certain class of people. And I, I so like I look, for instance, like you've all lent, Levin at AI has made this point is sort of like. People sort of look at these offices as they as they acquire them in government as sort of like notches on a bedpost as opposed to duties that have to be performed in payment to a country that has been so good to us. And or, or like another example, I mean, how many politicians are involved in legal graft as sort of like conflicts of interest? They all, virtually all of them are so much so that when the when it came out that the speaker of the house, the current speaker of the house, is in a millionaire, it was a scandal. That what well, he's been in office for over a decade. How hasn't he gotten rich? It's like, well, you know, the problem is, is that people get into these positions of power and they use them to enrich themselves, which is a problem in and of itself. But it illustrates the deeper issue is that they don't have a real true sense of justice. Like our elites are, are terrible. Yeah, we had uh, Matt Lewis on a couple months ago about his book, uh, Filthy Rich Politicians, which I think highlights a lot of the problems that you just described there of it's, you know, the rich get into it and get richer as a result. Um, you 
you beat me to the uh, Yuval Levin space on the bingo card for people out there who listen to this podcast. But I also hear the synthesis of that with one of your other AEI colleagues and Charles Murray. And I remember hearing Charles talk about to the extent that those elites at least live more or less in the kinds of ways that we would regard as being virtuous, they have been imbued with such a fear of talking about living the way that they are as a better way to live than alternatives that they just they they live that way but they do not preach what they practice so on one hand they're not being fully formed by the institutions they treat them as platforms instead of formation institutions like you've all diagnoses and then to the extent that they do operate their personal lives in that way they just won't talk about it for fear of coming off as judgmental Right. I, and then probably for me, a great example of this is, and I don't, you know, I don't, everybody has different politics on this, but I, I, you know, the number of politicians that support the legalization of marijuana, ask them how many of them would themselves or are themselves willing, if marijuana were legalized, would they partake of it? And most of them would probably say, no, I have work to do. I can't, I can't sit around and just be stoned all day, which is a sign of sort of like to your point, right? Um, And I think another problem as well is there is an absence of patriotism among political elites. And I I think it manifests itself in a number of ways. And by an absence of patriotism, I don't mean, um, you know, people in government are like not looking out for America's understand interests as they understand it. Although I think there are, I mean, you'll get that in, in any government. Well, That's then, not what I mean. But even in those conversations we have now, we have so many people who just invoke, you know, America's interest as the guiding right. point of it without any regard to there are disagreements about what may be in America's interest. Right. And I, I think that gets back to sort of what that's, yeah. And, and that I, I think that one of the, one of the challenges is that I think that patriotism for, for political elites requires a level of empathy and understanding of the rest of the political community and their lived experiences. I mean, there was a couple of years ago, I can't remember the author, but some, a great book about FDR called traitor to his class, right? That like FDR was really interesting and unique in the sense that like he had, even though he was, you know, frankly, as as being part of the Hudson River Roosevelt's was about as blue blooded as they came. And yet the man had an, he had an, a tremendous sympathy for the American people. I mean, to the point that he was sort of a farming nerd and understood like agricultural interests extremely well. And I, and, and I sort of think of that, about that when I, when I uh, like, particularly when I see today, like in the political conversation among among it's among Democrats right now. But if the shoe was on the other foot, I think Republican elites would do the same thing, talking about, you know, all oh, the economy is actually good. And it's like, no, it's not like go outside and, you know, drive 50 miles in any direction and talk to people and see what see what they say, because you have no idea. You know, you, you think just because you read a poll from, you know, CNN that you understand what the American people think you you do not. You you don't understand them. And, and 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 at no point have you been required to develop an empathy with the lived experience of your fellow Americans. You know, it's always also in the, the question of what do you compare it to? Like there is someone I was engaging with on uh, on Twitter who was making the point about you know, you look at the unemployment number and the inflation number right now under Joe Biden, and you'll get in 1984 under Reagan, and it's lower now than it was in 84. And it was like, but, you know, Reagan was seen as this hopeful figure and people are down on Biden. And why is that? Because nobody's comparing right now to 1984. People right. are comparing right now to the previous years that came before right. it. And they feel whether it is justified or unjustified that the person in the White House, and this is always the case, and this is why people like me have always made arguments about the president is not as responsible for the state of the economy as everybody thinks. It's like a coach in, in sports, right? right. Like, you know, When they lose, he gets too much blame. When they win, they, he gets too much credit. He gets too much credit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, you know, I just think that, um, you know, one of the frustrating things, I, I guess, is, is um, that we have this great instrument of government, but it, it, it asks a lot of us. And if as a, as a political community, if we're not doing what we need to do, then it's not going to work the way we want it to. I mean, the last chapter in the book I have is a, is a chapter on, um, what I call constitutional virtues. And, you know, the constitution doesn't really say anything about virtue. 
right? Um, you know, I guess it's certainly certainly not since um, prohibition was once again was was done away with, right? Nineteen thirty, when they got rid of prohibition, that was the last thing the Constitution had to say about virtue, at least explicitly, right? And you know, the First Amendment, you know, pretty clearly separates statecraft from soulcraft. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's it it doesn't have implied virtues, and and I think one of the implied virtues it has is um, empathy. It is one of the things that we really need to, if we want to be a successful country of 330 million people, we have to acknowledge that there's going to be 330 million different understandings of what the public good is, and that all of us are going to have disagreements. And as Jefferson, you know, famously said in his first inaugural, not all uh, disagreements of opinion or disagreements in principle. And this is, I, I think, remains. This is, you know, we we're talking a moment about you know, virtues of like the cardinal virtues, courage, moderation, prudence. I, th I think just simple, not toleration in the 21st century, you know, middle management buzz speak kind of like, you know, you know, professional development training seminars, toleration, but actual toleration of people who live a different way, who see the world a different way, that understand that their views are, they come from a place just like your views do. And that the purpose of, of the constitution is not to facilitate the triumph of one view over another view. The purpose of the constitution is to facilitate the discovery of common ground between individual views. And the Constitution and politics generally is supposed to be a forum. It's not supposed to be, you know, to invert the old phrase that, you know, politics is not supposed to be war by other means, at least not constitutional politics. Politics is supposed to be the discovery of common ground. And that's just something that we don't understand. Like we as a people, I, I think, have just forgotten. Um, and, and, and even in light of the fact that, you know, politics has always been and will always be full of like, you know, rough elbows and stuff, but there is a certain kind of religious zealotry, I think that has infested the pop body politic, um, particularly the fringes on both sides, which really sort of are increasingly driving the political conversation through, you know, cable news ratings, through online social media engagement and donations and things like that, that there's this, we're sort of forgetting what the constitution asks of us as citizens. I think the internet is one of those exacerbating problems too, which is, and I, I don't consider it a problem in the sense of it's something necessarily to be fixed, but that it is like any technological advancement like that. We have yet to really, it's fairly new in the history yeah. of humanity. We've yet to really learn how to live with it. And I think it was Christine Rosen who made the observation that like uh, social media kind of becomes all the downsides of living in a small town with none of the upsides. It makes things that happen thousands of miles away feel like they're happening in your backyard. And that tests people's tolerance for that kind of toleration right. when they are uh, when they see people living in ways they regard as bizarre right in the screen that they're holding in their hand rather than maybe being told about something that's happening thousands of miles away and going huh that's weird and moving on with their day i think that's such a good point i, I really do i like for instance you know i see things about the way things are in san francisco and i feel like personally like i feel an emotional reaction that is has nothing to do with my own personal life because I made the choice years ago not to not to live in San Francisco. You know, I live in a small town that, frankly, people in San Francisco would be like, "Well, this is a Christo fascist." You know, if they saw how things are in my community, but that's part of the point, though. Like, I'm not in your business; you're not in my business, or at least that wasn't the case until you know these things were invented, these, you know, these phones that we can just plug into. Until we all got tied together, whether we wanted to be or not. Whether we wanted to be or not. And it, it creates this sort of like, I don't know, this weirdly American kind of demand for uniformity. It's always been a weird vibe that we've had, where we always sort of have this kind of relentless desire to force other people to conform. Um, and the great release valve has always been our geographical difference distances from one another. But of course, technology has I mean, this conversation is a perfect example of this. Practically speaking, the distance between us is zero. You know? Yeah, the um, yeah, it, it we we have yet to really figure out how to live with these kinds of connections. And I, I to me, I always come back to thinking that I I think I understand the creators of these social platforms what they were thinking. This idea of wouldn't it be incredible if all kinds right. of people could talk to each other and we would better understand each other? And as it turns out. 
no familiarity often breeds contempt. Breeds contempt, um, yes, it does. Ra- <laughs> rather than, you know, figuring out, I was like, oh, you know, people on, you know, even different parts of this country and live in different ways and isn't this need to learn? And it turns out that's not our reaction. One, I think we will generally begin to process, but it's going to take time. And I think the reactions to a lot of this stuff, people are very impatient about. I agree. Be- before we go, I want to bring it back to uh, back to your book for a couple final questions. Sure. How how is our system of government as envisioned by the founders holding up? I mean, we've had a lot of conversations in the last number of years about uh, different political figures taking a sledgehammer to the institutions of our government, of our democratic republic, um, different arguments about how well it's holding up. In, in your view, how well do you think that system of government is holding up and how do you think the founders who – designed it would think of the way we're operating it now? I don't think it's holding up well. I don't think it's holding up well at all. Um, I think the founders would probably be, you know, you don't want to put words in their mouths, obviously, um, because they're sort of, they're gone and they belong to the ages. So I say this is perfectly just, you know, uh, this is just sort of my interpretation is I kind of feel like they would say that you people have missed the point entirely. Um, and the reason that I say that is, is sort of twofold and that they're sort of related. Um, the center of American political life is supposed to be Congress. That's just it. It's supposed to be Congress. You know, we were talking a moment ago about the point of politics is to find common ground, like through discussion. It's like literally the, 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 the definition of Congress means to walk together. Right. Um, and we don't do that. And Congress is like, you know, like defenestrated itself. It's like picked itself up by its own like underwear and hoisted itself out the window. Um, you know, they've just handed off power to the president. They've handed off power to the bureaucracy. They've allowed the Supreme Court to not only and both sides on the Supreme Court do this. They they make public policy. So they've just allowed all of that to happen to a degree that. I think that one of the problems that we have is that real power making decisions are done in the least representative institutions of our government. We get one one person in the entire executive branch wields any power that's accountable to us. Zero people in the courts um, are accountable to us directly as the people. We have 535 people in Congress. And frankly, I mean, that's related. We should have a lot more. The House of Representatives is not representative anymore. That's another illustration. I would say that's one big issue in the the the, the weakening of Congress. I, I think another issue is, and the Anti-Federalists warned about this. As a point the Anti-Federalists made was that the, the federal government's access to tax revenue would be so large that it could basically transform the states into vassals. And that really didn't happen, I don't think, until after World War II where the tax base, the, the the United States federal government has access to the greatest source of wealth in the history of the world, which is the American middle class. And it has access, it can tap into this seemingly limitless vein of wealth. And it is, and it has, in fits and starts, turned the state governments into vassals. Um, you know, basically the same way it happened in the medieval era. Like you, you know, the states need something from, you know, the, the, a nobleman needs something from a king. So the king gives it to him, but with strings attached. And we see this with Medicaid. We see this with highway spending. We see this with all sorts of things because the federal government's superior tax base enables it to give money to the States and so it bribes the states, and, and as a consequence, we don't people don't pay attention to the state. What's happening in the states anymore? Because there's no. I mean, we had a we had like for instance an off off year election, you know, just um, earlier this week, and you know, turnout was like thirty percent, which is a pretty pathetic level, you know, compared to a presidential election where it'll be seventy percent. Um, you know, people just don't pay attention to what's happening in the states, which is a problem, um, number one, because the states were meant to be a check on the federal government. But also, number two, the states are actually in charge of a lot of important things. You know, people have been complaining about these, you know, Soros DAs, like injecting themselves into political, you know, city life. Like, how has that happened? Well, it's happened because nobody pays attention to what's going on in the cities, at least not in a large enough number, you know. Um, and so I think that they would be 
they would be very concerned, I think, both between those two things that the Ultimately, there has been a draining of power from the most democratic, you know, most popularly elected, most even Republican institutions to the least Republican institutions. So that even though, and there's this great irony is that we have expanded and we've, we've corrected often at great costs to the, to the nation. We've corrected the grievous mistakes the founders made of having too narrow a definition of citizenship. We've expanded that and we've corrected that. But at the same time, we've also stripped away so many of the civic privileges that came with being a citizen of sort of a meaningful say in the affairs of the state. And, and that we we today have like the average American has less say over what happens than probably any average American citizen um, with the exception of, you know, blacks who were living under Jim Crow, who were technically citizens, but not protected with that exception, like citizens. And again, more narrowly defined, but in 1896 had more sovereignty than we do today in 2023. With regard to what you identified there and you know, without making this final question, just like the Keenan Thompson character on Saturday Night Live, who just kind of gesticulates and says, fix it. Um, <laughs> what is one specific change that you would prioritize in making, whether it's you know, legislative or you know whatever form that you think it would take, but something specific that you would want to change to begin addressing the problems that you just walked through? I think that the most important thing that we can do is rebuild the institution of Congress, generally speaking. And I think that implies a couple of things. I think that we need um, to massively expand the size of the legislative, um, uh, the the not just the members of the House of Representatives, although we definitely should do that. I'm pretty sure the German Bundesrat at a max has like 750 people. There's more people in the British House of Commons than there are in the American House of Representatives. There's no reason we can't have more people, uh, potentially a lot more. I think that would be enormously good for the country. But I also think that we need to start beefing out the institutional capacity of Congress. Congress simply lacks the expertise to be a proper guardian of the implementation of the law to make sure that the executive branch is doing what it's supposed to be doing. And, and also the writing of the law it relies too often on interest groups because Congress itself doesn't have the ability to answer questions. The last I checked, and I'd have to double check, but the last I checked I, it was that there were more employees in the U.S. Department of Agriculture than there are in the United in the first branch of the United States. And and roughly half of the people who are employed by the legislative branch are doing district service back home. So we need to massively expand um, the institutional Congress, institutional capacity of Congress to do its own research, to answer questions for itself. And you know, more members of Congress would mean more committees and more subcommittees and a closer eye on what the executive branch is doing um, and a closer eye on what the courts are doing. Um, we need to stop being penny wise and pound foolish. Like we, you know, like I remember in 2011 when the Republicans got in, the Tea Party got in, the first thing they did was they cut the congressional budget by 5% is sort of like a show of solidarity. That's the exact last thing that we should be doing. If anything, it should be like quadrupled. Jay Cost is the Gerald R. Ford non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he focuses on political theory, Congress, and elections. His latest book is Democracy or Republic, The People and the Constitution, which we've been discussing today. Jay, thanks so much for joining us today on Act in Line. Thanks for having me. It's been a great talk. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at actin.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Cohn.